The Coast Guard Academy has reached a record for its incoming class. 43% of the new swabs are women. For more on this and what else is happening at the Academy, we turn to its superintendent, Rear Admiral Bill Kelly. Admiral Kelly, good to have you on. Tom, it's a pleasure to be with you. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about the institution that we love. And before we get into the new uh, swabs, what a great, I guess that's better than knobs, but (laughs) the other people that float. But uh, just give us a quick review of the Coast Guard Academy mission, a little bit of the history there. Sure. uh, Appreciate that. The the Coast Guard Academy has been uh, a part of this nation's uh, uh, military since 18. 1976. The Coast Guard dates back to 1790, but uh, the Coast Guard Academy was first stood up in 1876 here in New London, Connecticut, and then moved around into its current location in 1932. And we've been training cadets to, to serve in the world's best Coast Guard ever since. The Coast Guard Academy is currently just over a thousand students. They study in nine different majors. All of them will receive a Bachelor's of Science degree. The goal is to ensure that each and every member of the Coast Guard Academy that walks across the stage on the third Wednesday in May graduates from the institute with a uh, solid liking for the sea and its floor. And what that means is an understanding of what it means to go and serve afloat, serve in the most challenging environments uh, that we see, and then, and then also understand how to progress forward in your career as a well-rounded officer, whether that's back afloat or whatever career you choose to pursue in the Coast Guard, you're going to be well-grounded in that because of the education and the co-curricular activities that you receive here. We have 23 NCA Division Three sports uh, that we're very competitive in, and then we have a, a sailing program that is nationally recognized. So if you're a cadet here at the Coast Guard Academy, you're going to have a busy day. Uh, you're going to be learning a lot. You're going to be doing a lot. Uh, and hopefully at the end of the day, you're going to be enjoying it a lot. And is the Coast Guard Academy equally selective the way the other service academies are, where you need a recommendation and from Congress, they're pretty tough to get into. Yeah, Tom, that's a, that's a great question. It is equally tough to get into the Coast Guard Academy, but we don't have the congressional uh, appointment process that the other service academies have. And we actually think that that provides us, or we know from the, from the data, that that provides us an opportunity to recruit a more diverse cohort of students. And uh, we're actually, the National Academy of Public Administration is doing an analysis of our, uh, of our admissions program, even as we speak. It was congressionally mandated, and they've come in, and they're taking a look at us. So we're going to learn a lot from that. But one of the things that uh, seems apparent from their initial look is that the appointment process may not be best suited for an institution of our size. Just over a 1,000 students. So if you think about that, that's on par with one class at the Naval Academy or West Point, where they have roughly 4,000 students there and also out at the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. Sure. Interestingly, Napa just finished a study of the Maritime Academy, and that was a little bit more yes, comprehensive look there. So read that one before they stop by and start looking yeah, what's going yeah. on at your place. But They just finished one, Tom, for us on uh, cultural competence here at the Coast Guard Academy. And uh, I was very heartened by the report. It basically said uh, cultural competence is within reach at the Coast Guard Academy and, and highlighted some of the things that we're doing as a leader in that area of inclusion and equity for our student body and also for our entire community here. So I think we're, we're preparing officers to go out and serve in a Coast Guard that's going to look very different tomorrow than it does today. And that gets to our question of how you were able to attract a class that is nearly half women which is a landmark kind of, I should say, a C-mark or a buoy mark level for <laughs> for the Coast Guard Academy. How did you do that? Yeah, Tom, I, I think it's been, I don't think it was a one-year event. This is something that's been growing here, the Coast Guard Academy. You know, what we find out about the Coast Guard and the Coast Guard Academy is when folks find out about it, they want a little bit more. So whether that's DOD calling the Coast Guard to serve in the South China Sea or in the Persian Gulf or wherever it might be, they get a little Coast Guard and they want a little bit more because they realize just how, how good and talented 
confident our people are. And so I think the word is out that the Coast Guard Academy is a place that you can come to as a young young woman or young man. You're going to get a great education. You're going to do it in a safe and inclusive environment. You're going to be challenged. You're going to be pushed. And at the end, you're going to have an opportunity to serve your nation as a as an officer in the United States Coast Guard, which is which is pretty cool, right? It's a, it's it's a it's not a hard job to get up and do every day as a superintendent here when you get to work with these great young women and men. But you know, I think admissions in the college environment right now is incredibly challenging. It's an incredibly demanding market. We're seeing the finest institutions in the land continuing to have an uptick in the number of applicants, and we're seeing those institutions that may be struggling or not as maybe not have the same brand recognition are not seeing the same number of applicants. So we have to constantly be on our game and ensure that our, our institution, our facilities, and our programs are the finest in the nation. And we're, we're the number one rated school by U.S. News & World Report in the North. We're very proud of that, and we have other accolades by other, you know, other institutions that rank colleges. But uh, we're constantly focused on ensuring that we maintain that competitive edge. And I think the young women and men who come here, whether it's through our summer programs, uh, we're currently running the AIM program right now, which is for rising high school seniors. They come to the academy for a week to learn what we're about. All of those types of opportunities and opening up our campus provides a window into what we do here in the Coast Guard, here at the Coast Guard Academy, but also what we do across the nation and around the globe as members of the Coast Guard. We are speaking with Coast Guard Academy Superintendent Rear Admiral Bill Kelly. And that cultural awareness, cultural competence then extends to how those women and I guess all the swabs, all the cadets are treated when they are actually enrolled and when they get started with their academic careers. How do you make sure that they have the same rigor that you would want from the days when it was all male, but yet be fair and culturally competent, given that it's the way we are in the 21st century. Yeah, Tom, I think I think it's evolved, right? It's evolved since I went through in 1983 and graduated in 1987. It's evolved since my son showed up here in 2010 and graduated in 2014. And it evolves over the four years that, I, that I've been here. We learned a lot during COVID. The United States military learned a lot about how to onboard, whether it's the new recruits coming through boot camps or the cadets uh, coming through each of our five military service academies. I had the privilege of being the CEO of Training Center Cape May, where all of our enlisted members come through from 2010 to 2013. So I think I have a strong grounding in how to assess young women and men into the service. And what we've tried to do here is we've tried to have more of an acclimation period right up front. COVID taught us because we were not able to do some of the things that we've done in the past that if you allow young women, young young folks to get acclimated to their surroundings, get to know the people that they're working with day in and day out, uh, then when you start to turn the heat up uh, and, and start to ramp up the challenges that they're going to face both physically, academically, uh, and then, you know, even from a mental health perspective, right? All of those things, when you start to know the, the, the folks around you and you have a relationship with them and you have trust built up with them, then you're much more resilient. And we found that uh, it has helped our retention numbers significantly by moving to that type of model. So we're going to continue to refine it. Each year is, is a challenge, and each year brings uh, its different opportunities, but we're going to continue to, to build upon that. And I think what we've done is ensured that it's an incredibly challenging program, but we've sequenced the steps appropriately in the program to ensure that it's also an incredibly fair program. It strikes me that when your son was in and you were also in the Coast Guard, you might be the only parent in the nation who can be a true helicopter parent. <laughs> well, I am a seagoing officer, so uh, 
to uh, to any of my colleagues out there who uh, who may be listening, you know, who are uh, who are a cutterman or slow in the Navy, they know that that's where uh, you know the, the the real chops are earned. We love our pilot brethren as well, and and uh, my daughter-in-law is in the Air Force and she flies there for them. So you know, I have loyalties on both sides of the aisle. All right, but you like propellers that you can't see. And just getting back to the <laughs> the whole idea of recruitment and diversity, what else do you have planned ahead for? I guess on the feedstock side, the recruitment side, to ensure ever-increasing diversity of who does come into the academy. Yeah, and, and Tom, you know, opportunities like this, right? Opportunities to to share our story with a broad audience about the opportunities that exist here at the Coast Guard Academy are greatly appreciated. Our, our commandant has come into office, uh, Admiral Fagan, the first female commander of any of the components in our United States military, and, and she's made it very clear, we need to do a better job of marketing the United States Coast Guard and all the good things that we do. We are focused squarely on talent management and recruiting the best and brightest into our service, both on the enlisted and officer and civilian side of the house. So I am confident that those efforts will help us get the word out. We need to continue to apply the appropriate resources, right? And college admissions and, and recruiting across any organization, money is the root of all excellence in many of these areas. We have a great story to tell. And with the Naval Academy being close to Washington every year, there's dutiful coverage in the local media of the greased monument I don't know whether they're putting a hat up there or taking one off. Is there anything equivalent at the Coast Guard Academy? There is, and I love seeing the Instagram posts from uh, from down in Annapolis. And a good friend of mine, uh, Admiral Sean Buck, who's a superintendent down there, we both came in at the same time, and we've both been through COVID and, and all the, the ups and downs. Uh, but there is uh, very much, we have what's called sea trials, which will be the last day of, of swab summer for the, for the swabs. Now, I hope no swabs are listening to this so the word gets out, but sea trials is an event that starts very early in the morning their final day and takes them through a series of series of rigorous opportunities, both educationally and physically, to demonstrate their teamwork, to demonstrate their readiness to move from being a swab to being a fourth-class cadet. And then uh, we will gather on our, our parade field, the Washington parade field out here, and we will do the final push-up. That's what we do collectively as a community, and that'll be on their last day. They just this past weekend, kind of to mark the midway point, they uh, they did what's called the long blue climb, which again is uh, starts early in the morning, and then we'll finish. Uh, we have a, a a big. We were talking about buoys earlier. We were joking about that. We have a a, a big buoy that's at the corner of our 103 acres here, and they will they'll run up the hill together collectively as a company, and they'll ring that bell. You know, they'll ring the gong on the buoy there. So that's part of the long blue climb, kind of symbolizing the halfway mark, and then we'll culminate it with the uh, with sea trials on the final day of Swap Summer. Sounds fantastic. Rear Admiral Bill Kelly, a superintendent of the Coast Guard Academy, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate the opportunity to tell our great story. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to 
as a leader? And what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, 
You know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2 of Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called Labor and Employee Relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current, uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.